because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Just a really quick intro today because the bulk of the show is going to be a speech I gave on Tuesday night at Lafayette College, two reasons why you might be interested in this speech. One is that I think it's the best version of the moral case for fossil fuel speech I've given to date. It includes a lot of insights and formulations that I've gotten while working on the moral case for fossil fuels 2.0. The other reason is this should have originally been not a speech, but a debate with Michael Mann. So if you want to know the backstory of this, listen on and you'll find out. Okay, so thank you all for coming. Um, this is Alex Epstein. Uh, Alex is a philosopher, author of the book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, um, and founder, a founder of a for-profit think tank called Center for Industrial Progress. I wanna tell you guys a quick word about um, how Alex like, came to be here tonight. So I invited Alex uh, to Lafayette over two years ago. And after he agreed to come, uh, we managed to secure the participation of a climatologist at Penn State named Michael Mann in a debate with Alex. Michael Mann is, um, again, a climatologist at Penn State who has, been a who has been raising the alarm bells regarding anthropogenic climate change um, for many years. Alex and Michael Mann have had numerous, could, would you say like conflicts online or arguments or disagreements online? I would say he attacked me and I asked him to explain himself and then he blocked me. So I okay. don't know if that's numerous. But. Yeah, and so, um, but you know, Michael Mann is a very prominent figure um, arguing that, you know, man-made climate change is a big problem. We need to take drastic action in order to deal with it. Alex has a different view, the Mill series actually managed to get both of them, uh, which would have been a great event because they have not debated, correct? That's, yeah. that's true. Yeah, and so um, anyway, I, I think this might be interesting for you guys to learn. So, um, I, so we scheduled the event. Michael Mann was coming, Alex was coming, they were gonna have a debate. The question was gonna be, should humanity, should humanity radically restrict fossil fuel use? That was gonna be the debate. Michael Mann was gonna argue yes, Alex was gonna argue no. I went to a professor here and asked her if she would like to um, attend and bring some of her students. She's very involved in environmentalist issues on campus. Um, obviously, she would align more with the Michael Mann perspective, um, but I told her about the debate. I asked her if she would be interested in coming. Uh, she said no, and her reasons were, she said Alex, she said a few things. She said Alex does not meet the reasonableness threshold. So, um, you know, and, and therefore to give him a platform at a university would put a false impression in students' minds that his viewpoints had more merit than they really do. That was her view. Um, and, then she, and then in elaborating on that point, she said that he ignores the science on, um, I think, the, maybe on the extent of man-made climate change and its likely effects and on the scalability and reliability of uh, alternative fuel sources like wind, solar, and she also mentioned hydro. She also said that he is linked to the Cato Institute and the Merchants of Doubt, and I'm not really, I don't even know what that means exactly, but. Um, okay, you can ask in the q and I don't think yeah. it's that interesting. Okay, so, um, so for all the, so like that was how she kind of expanded on her claim that 
Alex does not meet the reasonableness threshold, and therefore it would actually be counterproductive for him to share a stage with someone like Michael Mann at a university debate. Again, the idea was that like, students would get the false impression that his viewpoints had more merit than they did. Um, so she said she would not attend. Fine, right? Um, but then that same day, Michael Mann pulled out of the debate. And I later learned that uh, some professors had contacted him and urged him to pull out of the debate. And then you guys might or might not know this, but Michael Mann was actually invited to do a solo event by Lafayette several months later. Okay? So, um, and uh, at that point I had already, uh, you know, paid half of, the Mill series had already paid half of Alex's honorarium. Um, and uh, so I knew that I still wanted to, bring, wanted to bring him. And the reason it's been so long is that I was actually waiting um, until my tenure decision was made. Uh, because I thought if I brought him before my tenure decision was made, it might negatively affect the decision. Now the decision has been made, and so Alex is here. Um, so anyway, two years after this all began, um, again, philosopher, author of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, founder of Center for Industrial Progress, Alex, take it away. Thanks. Please join me in welcoming him. Oh, thanks. Yeah, so that's, uh, well, first of all, this is really a fun size audience. So this reminds me of um, when I was getting started speaking maybe 10 years ago. This is my second smallest audience I can remember. The first smallest was three, including the organizer, and there was no COVID. So for those watching later on the internet, it's not just that I was an unpopular draw. It's that uh, we're in the middle of uh, COVID-19 still. So Brandon's story is, is really interesting and not particularly surprising. And so what you might gather is I'm going to share with you a view that's considered crazy by a lot of people. And it's a view that I definitely did not expect to have when I was growing up, when I was in college, even through my mid-20s. And this is the view that one of the best things you can do to make the world a better place is to support more fossil fuel use. So like one of the best things you can do to make the world a better place is to support more fossil fuel use. And I advocate this to what, so it's a kind of a crazy idea in people's view. And then I sometimes take what are considered crazy measures uh, in favor. So just to give one example, there I have these I love fossil fuels pins that I handed out, which, you know, that itself draws some attention. Uh, but I actually went several years ago to the largest anti-fossil fuel rally in history, in New York City, there are 100,000 people marching against fossil fuels. And I was carrying the I Love Fossil Fuels flag. So I just thought I would show you this. Do you hear what they're saying? Hey, hey, ho, ho, fossil fuels have got to go. I have a very different opinion on the matter. Uh, let's, go, let's go see if we can engage. Can we just go stand in the middle? Hey guys. Oops. 
So yeah, there's a really uh, interesting experience. They're all on YouTube. I'll, I'll share with you guys. The, uh, if you put your actual email actually on the resources card, or if anyone watching this, just email alex at alexepstein.com Lafayette, because I'm speaking at Lafayette, and I'll send you a whole bunch of resources, including this. But when I'm at places like this, people's question is, like, what the hell are you doing? Why uh, are you doing this? And I'm curious, can anyone guess what people's number one explanation is? Why anyone would hold an I Love Fossil Fuels sign? Not you. Yes. Checking to see who engages with you. Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, I, I'm curious who engages with me. But usually, I mean, the people there, particularly protesters, have a certain assumption of why I'm there. Yeah? Were you going to say something? Oh, I thought uh, someone was, oh, you were stretching. Yes. yes. Is it to get like a rise out of people? OK, to, uh, to get a rise out of people. Yeah, I think partially I suspect that. OK, Brandon. Oh, no, you, you can go. Uh, how about that there's a tyranny of the consensus? So for most of us, actually, we don't have the time or the speciality to engage in any one. Like, we really have to focus on one narrow bit of information. So uh, by design, we have to uh, believe what the experts tell us. So if, by and large, the propaganda that's put forth is that fossil fuels are dangerous, uh, you're putting up an opposition to that, and you're presenting the other side when it's so lopsided on one side. Uh -huh. No, but, he, but he's asking why well, so most why people... He's doing that. But, but he's, he's asking why most people think he's doing it. Yeah, most people don't have that sophisticated that's an answer. That's why I would think you're doing it. Okay, that. well, that's really... <laughs> I'm glad. That's it. Uh, Yes? Yeah, they probably think you take high Yeah, so I think that's the standard kind of explanation is somebody is, uh, is paying you to do this. Like, you know, an oil company tracked me down and thought, oh, this guy could be a great spokesman, and they gave me a bunch of money, and then I started carrying the sign. And so actually, I didn't even know anyone in the industry when I came up with these ideas, let alone getting any uh, money from them. And then often another thing is they think, oh, well, maybe you grew up in a place that's pro-fossil fuels, and maybe your family has heritage in it. So like you grew up in Kentucky or Houston or something like that. And so then it's, well, yeah, you couldn't help but uh, absorb it. It's just your environment. And so I grew up in a place called Chevy Chase, Maryland, which is in the DC area. If you know the DC area, it's not a like conservative, not that I'm a conservative, but it's not like a conservative or pro-fossil fuel place at all. Uh, I have no family in the industry uh, at all. And that's part of why I had no expectation of coming to this view. And yet, I came to hold this view of the goodness of fossil fuels and actually the world should be using more fossil fuels like so strongly that I would go to a protest like this. And the reason I'd go to a protest like this, and you may find this hard to believe, but it's 100% true, is when I see people attacking fossil fuels, like I think of that as an injustice on the level that this is like a civil rights building, like on the level of civil rights. Like why do people go to protest for civil rights? Because they think like there's an injustice that is being done to people, often on the basis of race or something you just think is completely wrong. And like I think it is that wrong for the world to be getting off fossil fuels. Now I don't expect you to agree with me at this stage, and I may well not convince you tonight, but I at least want to give you the outline of how I became uh, convinced of this. And I think the core of what led me to this is my background, Brandon mentioned, in philosophy. Now, philosophy is generally considered the most useless uh, subject in the world. I, when I was 20, I was at Duke University and I was a computer science major, and I told my advisor, I'm going to become a philosopher. And he was very unimpressed uh, by this decision because he's like, well, 
whoever says I have a problem, let's call a philosopher for the solution. Like philosophy is considered useless. And it's certainly, why would you think of it in energy, right? You, well, you, we just need to listen mainly to climate scientists, we're told, why would we need a philosopher? And when I was testifying in front of the Senate Environment and Pu Public Works Committee, I made a whole statement. And then I'm in California now, my senator at the time, Barbara Boxer, she explained to me why there was no need for a philosopher. And then I explained to her why I thought there was. Mr. Epstein, are you a scientist? No, philosopher. You're a philosopher? Yes. Okay. Well, this is the Environment and Public Works Committee. I think it's interesting we have a philosopher here talking about an issue. It's to teach you how to think more clearly. Well, you don't. <laughs> so, so that was, uh, and I didn't plan that at all, but that's what came to mind. And the reason is because I do think clear thinking is important. I believe philosophy, for me, it's the most practical subject because I think clear thinking in anything determines how successful you are. And whether you're thinking about fossil fuels or relationships or a business, clear thinking is always better. And one thing that struck me about the thinking of energy, once I started getting into it a little bit and thinking about it, um, was that I really disagreed with one of the, with the methods that we're using to think about energy. I'll give you, I think, the main example. First, the positive. So this seems like common sense, but a lot of common sense things aren't common practice. So one key method in thinking is whenever you're evaluating alternatives, you want to look at the full context, which means you want to look at your options and you want to weigh the benefits and the side effects of each option. So I have your you know, bottle of antibiotics. You're considering taking an antibiotic. What do you do? You have to look at the benefits and the side effects as precisely as you can. And then you need to look at the benefits and the side effects of the different options, including doing nothing. And then you decide which is best overall. And that's kind of common sense. And you think, yeah, of course we do that. But I noticed that in fossil fuels, we don't do that. I, I thought there was a tendency to look at the, mostly the side effects of fossil fuels and not the benefits. And this also applied to nuclear, interestingly, which we could talk about. And then with solar and wind, people tend to only look at the benefits and not the side effects. So for example, with fossil fuels, like one of the things that I learned early that really fascinated me, which I'll talk more about a little later on, is that one reason we use oil is because it's a uniquely concentrated form of energy. And the more concentrated energy is, the better it is for different kinds of mobility and transportation. And I learned that almost all the fuel we use to power all the farm equipment in the world is using oil, diesel fuel. And part of the reason is it's so concentrated. There's nothing else like that that has the kind of strength to weight ratio oil has. And I thought, you know what? When we're making decisions about whether to get off fossil fuels, we need to consider this benefit of super concentrated energy. I had supposedly gone to one of the top math science high schools in the country, one of the top universities in the country. I never learned anything about this. I had only learned about uh, side effects. And I you know, never heard anything negative about solar and wind. And so that's one aspect is that there, I noticed a bias. So bias is in people are only looking at the negative context about fossil fuels, the side effects, and the positive context about solar wind. So I didn't know what was true. Uh, I didn't know, for example, it could still be that we're ignoring the benefits, but the side effects are still way worse. But I knew that that kind of bias couldn't lead to the truth. And then the next thing I noticed, which is related to the full context, is people weren't, even a lot of the leading thinkers weren't, it didn't seem like they were weighing things very precisely. So I'll give you an example, like this idea of climate change. I was really interested in what are the climate side effects of fossil fuels? Like when we burn fossil fuels, how much warming does that cause? Like I suspected it did cause some, and I, I still believe it does. Like how much warming, how does that affect 
rainfall? How does that affect sea levels? But I really want to know with precision, like if it's two feet in 100 years, which is what a lot of the UN reports say, that's one thing. If it's 20 feet in a few decades, like Al Gore says in his movie, that's totally different. Just like when people are debating vaccines, like it's different if the vaccine causes a rash or it causes autism. Those are hugely different levels of side effects. But what I noticed when people were talking about side effects, they weren't weighing them very carefully. They would just say, oh, climate change is real. Like, are you a climate change denier? I'd say, well, it's not whether I believe it's real, it's how significant is it? What's the magnitude? And there was just a lot of resistance toward being precise about that. And so it was just almost impossible to get the full context of what are the benefits of fossil fuels? What are the side effects? How do those compare to the um, alternatives? So I became very interested in weighing those benefits and side effects myself and looking at uh, particularly going forward, what can we expect the benefits to be? What can we expect the side effects to be? And when I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking in terms of the con a concept I like human flourishing, which is a concept from philosophy, which different people have different interpretations of. But I'll tell you why I like this concept. The idea of human flourishing is human beings living to their highest potential. So you can think of like flourishing comes from flower, like a flower living to its highest potential, that's flourishing. You know, a bear can flourish. Human beings living to their highest potentials, that includes the physical world, it includes the mental world, things like happiness. And it also includes things like environmental quality. You can't think of human beings as flourishing if they're suffocating on smoke all the time, or if they're just totally ravaged by storms all the time. And I also like it because it has a certain long-term connotation. So you can't think of something as flourishing if it's just doing something that's going to destroy it the next day or the next decade. So when I'm thinking about fossil fuels, I want to think in terms of human uh, flourishing. So that includes like a safe and healthy um, environment. So today I'm going to share with you the three basic ideas I have about why the benefits of fossil fuels going forward will far, far outweigh the side effects. I'll just summarize them and then I'll, I'll jump right in. So one is for decades to come, fossil fuels will be, will be by far the lowest cost source of reliable energy for billions of people. And point two is reliable low cost energy is fundamental to human flourishing, including a safe and healthy environment. And three is that continued use of reliable low cost fossil fuel energy will cause some warming, but it will be extremely manageable, not catastrophic. So I just want to stress, I'm not arguing fossil fuel use has no side effects. I'm not arguing it doesn't cause any kind of climate impact. I'm arguing that the benefits of using it far, far outweigh the side effects. So let's start with the first idea. For decades to come, fossil fuels will remain by far the lowest cost source of energy for um, billions of people. Now, this is definitely not the view that we hear today. I think often if you look at different newspapers, what you'll see is the view that solar and wind are rapidly replacing fossil fuels. So it's, it's maybe we needed fossil fuels in the past, that's great, but in terms of going forward, solar and wind are where it's at, they can rapidly replace fossil fuels. And this is why there's a very popular movement of a, what's called 100% renewable, which is mostly solar and wind. You look at, for example, in the, you know, in the presidential elections and in the elections, you know, many, many candidates are saying either 100% renewable, get off the fo fossil fuels off the grid by 2035, get off fossil fuels entirely or be quote net zero by 2050. So it's definitely viewed that this statement is not at all true and that if anything, solar and wind are gonna be cheaper and they're gonna create a lot of, of great jobs. So why do I think something contrary? Well, I'll share it with you three facts that really shape my perspective. And fact one has to deal with, has to do with um, 
how long different alternatives fossil fuels have been around. So my perspective before I started studying energy was that most of the alternatives to fossil fuels are new. So I thought of it as why do, because I really had this question and maybe you have the same one. When I was a teenager and in my 20s, like why are we still using oil? Why are we using coal? You know, you read about the industrial revolution in the 1800s, like they're using coal and we're still using coal. And it's at the time it was like 2010, now it's 2020, like oil and they're kind of grimy and dirty. Why, and, you know, gas can explode. Why are we still doing this? Like didn't make any sense. And, and my, the assumption I had is, oh, well, just because all the alternatives are new. So we haven't had like solar and wind and biofuels and nuclear. They haven't been around that long, so they just haven't had the chance to compete. But now they have a chance to compete and they'll rapidly outcompete these antiquated fossil fuels. So fact one that really made an impression on me was that this is not true. Actually, all the major alternatives have been around for a long time. Really, all of them have been around for 100 plus years with the possible exception of nuclear, depending on how you think about nuclear. Uh, so it's over the last 100 years, Entrepreneurs have tried to produce low-cost, reliable energy using many different fuels. So sun, wind, water, waves, tides, geothermal heat, wood, crops, radioactive materials like uranium and thorium, of course, oil, coal, and gas. And not only have people, entrepreneurs tried doing this, but there have been many claims that solar, wind, and others would overtake fossil fuels. So for example, this is one of the leading uh, I, would, I call them designated experts or thought leaders. So people that we're told are the leading experts. So like in climate and policy, Michael Mann is like a, definitely a designated expert uh, in our society, like by the New York Times and the Washington Post. And at this point, I am not designated as expert by them. Uh, and this is another guy, Amory Lovins, who's probably the number one thinker in energy in the 70s and still one of the leading ones today. So he says, recent research suggests that a largely or wholly solar economy can be constructed in the United States with straightforward soft, that basically means green or renewable uh, technologies, he's mostly talking about solar, that are now uh, demonstrated and now economic or nearly economic. So this is the kind of thing you could be saying today. But this was said in 1976. So it's interesting that these competitors have been around a long time and claims that they're gonna rapidly overtake fossil fuels have been around a long time. And this leads to fact two, which is what's the actual state of competition in the world, which I think most people even in the fossil fuel industry don't know this fact, which is that despite the existence of many forms of energy production, all these competitors, fossil fuels are the energy of choice over 80% of the time. And they're also the world's fastest growing source of energy. That really shocks people. So I think 80% of the time, 80% of the world's energy. So energy, I'll talk about more, is like machine food. It's what our machines eat, just like we eat food. They eat machine food or machine calories. Most of those calories come from not just most, 80% or more, come from oil, coal, or gas. So almost all the world's machines are operating on oil, coal, or gas. And every year, more new calories from fossil fuels are coming out than from any other sources. So even in 2019, there were more new calories from oil, coal, and gas compared to solar and wind. And that just seems impossible, uh, given what we hear. In the Q&A, you can ask me if you're interested in how the news can say things that seem to contradict this. I'll, I'll tell you, they basically have a lot of ways of playing with words that are distorting this, but this is just, this is not a, I didn't get this from some conservative source. This is just nonpartisan data from all, all the sources. So we have this fascinating thing where we have you know, generations of competition, and yet this form of energy, fossil fuels, we use more fossil fuels than every other 
type of energy combined times 4. And it's still the fastest growing source. So this raises the question, why is this? And I think we have to take this seriously. There's got to be some, there's something about fossil fuels that make people use them. And it can't just be, oh, it's a conspiracy by the industry. Because there are places around the world, like Japan, that have no desire whatsoever to use fossil fuels. They don't have a fossil fuel industry there. But yet they're building new coal plants. China and India building hundreds of new coal plants. Like, why is this happening? And one way to think of this is, why aren't solar and wind so dominant yet after all these decades? Because my thought of it originally, and I think this is a common thought, is, well, look, the sun is free and the wind is free. And so why is it not, why can't we just get this energy really cheaply? You know, that, and that's often the argument. Well, of course, it's, it's bound to be free. I was debating last year, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., to, to his credit, he, he debated me. Uh, and he's saying, like, yeah, it's free. You know, this stuff is free. Like, and it, so what is wrong with that uh, argument? So I'm curious, is anyone, anyone who disagrees with that, if you agree with that argument, don't, don't that, that makes sense. But does anyone have an argument why that might be wrong? Like, they're free, the sun is free and the wind is free, so they're going to be cheap. Yes? Maybe they're not as powerful. What, they're not as powerful, so what does that mean? Interesting. So, yeah, if you think about things being cost effective, part of cost effective is effective. So maybe it's solar energy can't be used to fly an airplane or power, um, you know, a combine harvester. All right. So I think that's that's part of it. Yes. The energy storage, specifically, I guess when it comes to power grid scale, like wind or solar, you have the issue of when the wind doesn't blow or when it's cloudy or uh -huh. dark out. Um, as for like cars or planes, uh, you need to store that energy usually in batteries, and they just batteries don't have the energy density that uh, fossil fuels do. Okay, so I think those are some some definitely some relevant facts in terms of storage is involved. They're not available all the time. Uh, any other thoughts? Yes. So, like they're not technically free. No, they're free. That like so the, the per capita like energy produced by these like fields of like solar panels are made, like those aren't free realistically. And I'm sure that they don't maximize like space, like fossil fuels do. What do you mean they're not free? Why aren't they free? I mean like I mean like it literally like, costs money to like create wind on um, like farms, like fossil wind. Like, cost money to create the wind? Like to like you know create wind turbines. Oh to create wind turbines. Yeah. Right. Okay, so there's something that needs to be done to actually get energy from it. It's a, I think that's that this is all getting at it. And actually one of my favorite answers to this uh, I found very illuminating was offered by, of all people, Jimmy Fallon on Saturday Night Live. So I'll show you the clip, but I'll just give the context. He, ex he really made clear to me why the fact that something is from the sun or the wind or so-called renewable doesn't make it free. So he wasn't talking about the sun and the wind. He was talking about a different form of renewable energy, which is hazelnut energy. So let's hear what he has to say. New Scientist magazine reported on Wednesday that in the future, cars could be powered by hazelnuts. That's encouraging, yeah, considering an eight-ounce jar of hazelnuts costs about $9. <laughs> yeah, I got an idea for a car that runs on bald eagle heads and Fabergé eggs. So he says a jar of hazelnuts costs $9, but why is hazelnut energy so expensive? Because it comes from the sun. And I think what he would say is, well, it's not just the sun 
that goes into hazelnuts and hazelnut energy, there's a whole process you need to take the sunlight and make it into usable hazelnut energy. And that's true of every form of energy. Nature doesn't give us, what happened to my, oh, I'm sorry, I deleted a slide, so I'll just have to explain that. Um, nature doesn't give us usable energy for our machines. What it gives us is it gives us raw energy. So it gives us things like the sun and the wind and coal and oil and gas. And then we have to go through a process to find that energy and then to convert it or transform it into some useful uh, form. And so when you're thinking about solar energy, you can't just think about the sun. You need to think about what's the whole process needed to transform the sunlight into reliable energy. And I want to emphasize reliable energy because most of the energy we need has to be reliable, means that, meaning that it's available on demand as much as we need it. It can't just be, oh, you're flying a plane and the energy is available a third of the time. Right? That's a very fatal uh, problem. Even if the energy goes out for two minutes, that can be uh, a fatal problem. And so with that in mind, I want to talk about the third fact, which is that solar and wind depend on backup from reliable fuels. And now why is this? Well, because the sun and the wind are not themselves reliable. Right? They're, they're available sometimes. Like right now, the sun is not available. That's uncontroversial. So sometimes it's dark. I mean, most of the time it's dark or it's cloudy. And then a lot of the time, most of the time, even most places, uh, the wind is quite calm. And so what does that mean? That means that you have to, when, if you want to get energy from the sun and the wind, your process has to find a way to transform unreliable energy into reliable energy. And just to show you what that looks like, this is Germany, which this really shed a lot of light on this issue for me. And this is just Germany. Uh, it's basically every day. It was the most precise data I could get when I was writing the moral case for fossil fuels. So I wanted to know how much electricity, and this is just electricity, by the way. This isn't for um, like airplanes and farms and making steel and stuff, which involve other things, other uses of fossil fuels, but just electricity. And I wanted to know how much are they using and then how much is coming from solar and wind. And what you can see is solar is black, wind is gray. And so sometimes it's a decent percentage. You know, it might be 30 or 40 here. Today it's a little bit higher. So you'll see a headline that says, oh, Germany got 50% of its electricity from solar. And if you go minute by minute, you can say even higher. So it might be 75% a minute. And you think, oh, great, Germany's powered 75% by solar and wind. But what's actually happening is it's sometimes being powered that much, but sometimes it's almost to zero when it's dark and when the wind is calm. And so the question is, if you want to have reliable electricity, what percentage backup do you need of the sun and the wind? Anyone want to guess? 100%. Nearly 100%. Very close to um, 100%. There's some interesting debates about this, but it's essentially it is very close to 100% because it's you know, pretty frequent in these systems that you'll go down to like 3%. And so if you're going down to 3% and people still need the 100%, what do you need? Well, you need coal, gas, nuclear, hydro. So something reliable. Doesn't necessarily have to be fossil fuels. I'll talk about why it's mostly fossil fuels in a second. But it has to be some reliable power plant. So what does that mean? Well, when you're, when you're thinking about the cost of the sun and the wind, 
it's not just the cost of the solar panels and the wind turbines, and it's not even just the cost of those plus all the massive transmission lines that you need to like, take distant solar and bring it to a city. It's also the cost of all the reliable power plants. So basically what happens is when you're adding solar and wind, you're not replacing the reliable power plants. You're not replacing that cost. You're adding to the cost. So you're adding infrastructure that's very duplicative. And so it adds a lot of cost. And that's why, um, I'll show this slide first, there's a tendency that the more solar and wind a grid use, the more expensive the electricity uh, becomes. And just one example is Germany. So this is Germany. Starting in 2000, they started adopting a lot more solar and wind. And their electricity prices have doubled to the point where they're three to four times what we pay in the US. But even in the US, our electricity prices, particularly where I live in California, but even across the US, are artificially high because of solar and wind. And the, the way we can know this is if you look at the price of the major sources of electricity in the US are natural gas, coal, and nuclear, which uses uranium fuel. The price of natural gas has gone way down. The price of coal has gone down. The price of uranium has gone way down. So the fuel has gotten cheaper, and yet our electricity has become more expensive. The only thing that can explain that is we added a lot of duplicative infrastructure. And remember, this isn't replacing the fossil fuels. It's just adding on to the fossil fuels. Now, you might think, well, isn't it, that, isn't it still good because we're saving some fuel because when the sun is shining, the wind is blowing, we don't need to use all that fuel. Well, even that's only partially true. So if we go back to Germany, if we think about, by the way, this is a slide I hadn't mentioned before, just the cost of energy is determined by the cost of the total process. And if anyone wants my slides, just email me or write it on your sheet, and I'll, I'll happy to send them to you. Uh, but if we look at Germany, so the question is, when the sun and the wind go down and when they go up and when they go down, and on a daily basis, within a day, it's happening a lot, what that means is that the, the gas, it's usually gas, has to go up and down too. Well, when you, when you accelerate and decelerate rapidly with your car, what happens to your fuel efficiency? Like in stop and go traffic. It goes way down, right? And so basically, this is stop and go traffic for reliable power. When you have the unreliable fuels, it means stop and go traffic for the reliable fuels. So and you end up using the fossil fuels or the nuclear or the hydro quite uh, wastefully. So what we find is when we look at the full process or the total process of solar and wind, they're not replacing fossil fuels. They're adding a lot of uh, cost. Now, I just want to talk for a second about, OK, what's, why are fossil fuels such a low cost process? And I think when we're thinking about alternatives, there are three things to recognize about fossil fuels. They have these three natural attributes that are remarkable. And they're actually only shared by one other form of energy, which we'll talk about in a second, at least one other technology that exists today or even potentially, to my knowledge. It's even on the drawing board. So one is natural storage. So remember the sun and the wind, they're intermittent. They're unreliable. They just flow, and then they stop, and then they flow. Whereas fossil fuels, the energy in fossil fuels, like in oil, it's just there. So it's available on demand. So that makes it cheaper, because you don't have to store it yourself. You don't have to build a battery to store it. It's its own battery. And actually, it comes historically from the sun. So fossil fuels are actually stored solar uh, energy. Now, you could ask, well, sir, aren't renewable biofuels like wood and, uh, and like ethanol, aren't they stored? And the answer is yes and no. They're not quite as concentrated as fossil fuels. 
Uh, but the main thing is they're not naturally stored in the sense that there's not that much wood lying around that we can burn. And when, even when people are relying on wood, they just deforest the hell out of wherever they are and they run out pretty quickly. So what happens is to get that storage, you have to grow it yourself. So you have to farm those and that becomes very expensive. Whereas the oil, we'll talk about abundance, there's so much of it, you don't have to farm it yourself, it's just available in the ground. The second thing is natural concentration. I mentioned this. So with oil, it stores a huge amount of energy in a small space, and that makes it really good for any kind of mobility or transportation. So there was you know, a couple years ago, there was this fiasco uh, of like there was this solar plane. And I forget what the economics were, but it, it was well over a million. I think it might have even been $10 million. I apologize for not knowing the number off the top of my head, but it was like, it was in the millions of dollars, it could only hold one person and it didn't even make it its full trip because it's trying to use solar panels. Like that's an extreme contrast of, because the solar panels are so dilute. The sun has, is so dilute compared to something as concentrated as oil. So fossil fuels are naturally stored, naturally concentrated. And then the third thing is they are naturally uh, abundant. So there's a ton of them. And the reason is, is because they come from ancient dead life, including plant life that through processes was just stored underground and turned into these fuels. And there's just, in the case of oil, which is usually the hardest to find, there's at least 10 times more of it still in the ground that has existed in the, than we've used in the entire history of civilization. So the amount of this stuff that exists is just huge. If we look at these things, natural storage, natural concentration, natural abundance, if we look at the alternatives, Almost no alternative has these three attributes. Like solar and wind have natural abundance, but they don't have natural storage and natural concentration. Um, you know, biofuels, they sort of have storage, but not really, but they don't have the natural uh, abundance. Now, can anyone think of, and if you can guess this on the first try, I'll give you a signed copy of Moral Case for Fossil Fuels or an I Love Fossil Fuels t-shirt, whichever one you want. What is the other form of energy that has natural storage, natural concentration, and natural abundance? Yes. Nuclear. Nuclear, why do you think that? It's very abundant, it's very dense, and uh, it's naturally stored. Yeah, all right, you win, very good. Yeah, so nuclear energy, this is really important. So in general, human beings have moved towards, source. we used to use actually a lot of renewables historically, like windmills in the Middle Ages, and we'd use plants and stuff, and we moved toward these very concentrated sources of energy. And so nuclear is really interesting because it's definitely naturally stored. Like the, it's stored and the amount of energy stored holding the nucleus of an atom together is just huge. Like one of my favorite analogies I ever heard was a really good nuclear advocate, and I'm a really big nuclear advocate myself, and he was pointing out that coal stores a ton of energy. And he said that a golf ball of uranium has as much energy stored as Yankee Stadium full of coal. So you just, like that image always stuck with me. So let's talk about that. What about nuclear as an alternative? Now, one thing about nuclear that's really important is that most people who are anti-fossil fuels and who claim to care about climate catastrophe are very anti-nuclear. So we spoke about Michael Mann. Michael Mann is very anti-nuclear. Like he insists on solar and wind. And maybe at the end we'll talk about why, but it's instructive that the anti-fossil fuel movement tends to be against nuclear, even though nuclear has no pollution, like no air emissions, and basically no CO2 emissions, except insofar as right now you need fossil fuels uh, to make it, but less than solar and wind certainly, and it's, it's opposed. So what about nuclear? Like, do we need to use fossil fuels if we have nuclear? Well, so here's, here's the situation with nuclear. 
think nuclear has the potential to be the energy of the future in many, many decades. But if you look at it right now, nuclear is actually declining in the world. And the reason is cost. Now, why does it cost so much to produce nuclear energy? Now, one reason, I don't think this is the main reason, is just it's a lot more complex to extract energy from uranium through what's called nuclear fission than it is to burn fossil fuels. So even though it's naturally concentrated, naturally stored, naturally abundant, it takes a much more complex process to extract it. And so that's going to add some costs. But I think the main reason actually is that there's so many regulations on it, most of which I don't think are justified, that it's basically criminalized to do it. So if you think about, and these are called safety regulations, but I don't think they help with safety. They just make it expensive. So you think about, um, you know, just take, I think of this, this example with myself. So let's say I'm fairly well off American, but not super wealthy or anything like that. Like, okay, normally I can afford to live a good life, but if you told me, you know what, Alex, like, I think, I think you're a threat to humanity. We need five police officers tailing you all the time. Well, think about what that would cost. Let's say their salary and everything else might, might cost $500,000 total. Like, it would be super expensive for me to exist. And basically, that's what happens with nuclear plants. They're treated as super, super dangerous, and thus, we have huge amounts of people and measures used to make them supposedly safe, and it just becomes cost prohibitive. And so I believe long-term, and even short-term, we need to advocate for the decriminalization of nuclear. You can ask me in the question period. I believe nuclear is actually the safest form of energy ever devised. I think we need to, I think people should be able to build nuclear reactors in their garage. It's actually impossible for nuclear to explode in the way people think it can. Um, but in any case, this is a multi-decade, multi-generation thing. This is going to take many, many decades and even generations to catch up, even for electricity. And as I mentioned, there's no nuclear solution right now. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this. I mentioned it for other things, for mobility, so like for planes and cargo ships. I think there could be, but we're just nowhere near any of this. So the issue with nuclear is it's just been held back so much. It's going to take many decades, but we should definitely be moving forward and decriminalize it. So it's really crucial for the future, but it's not going to replace fossil fuels in the next 15 years, which is what we're talking about. Plus, most people who say we need to replace fossil fuels are anti-nuclear, which is part of the reason it's a problem. Now, the other one is hydro, which is a really interesting form of energy. A, because it's also widely opposed by many of the opponents of fossil fuels. So like the Sierra Club, if you go to their website, they'll say, we got to get off fossil fuels. And they also say, we're proud that we've shut down dozens of dams like hydroelectric dams. And so hydro doesn't emit CO2, doesn't have air pollution. And yet it, people are against that too. But the real thing with hydro is it's great, but you need certain topography. You need flowing water and gravity to, uh, to make it properly. And there is more potential for hydro in the world that's being used, but there's not enough to power the entire world. And even then, it's just electricity. It's not, um, it's not, for tr not the, like, what's called heavy-duty mobility like planes and cargo ships, et cetera, and not like the hot, what's called industrial heat, which is used for things like making cement and making steel. OK, so that is the summary. And that's going to be the longest point, because there's just a lot of technical detail, but it's important to get that this is why I think fossil fuels will be by far the lowest cost source of reliable energy for billions of people. There will be other things that are low cost on some scale, like hydro. Hopefully, we can start improving nuclear processes. But there's nothing that can replace uh, fossil fuels. So if we want billions of people to have as much energy or more energy, then we need to continue using a lot of fossil fuels. 
And so that raises the question, well, should we? How important is it that billions of people have reliable low-cost energy? Especially if we're concerned about CO2 emissions, maybe CO2 emissions are so bad that we should be willing to deprive people of reliable low-cost energy. That's, that's a position that, that you can have, but I think we need to recognize there is that trade-off. So if you want to dramatically lower CO2 emissions, you have to reduce energy use in the world. Right now, given the state of reality, there's no getting around that. You could wish it to be differently, but that's the fact. So there is this trade-off between energy use and CO2 emissions. And if you wanted to deal with it the best way possible, you'd advocate nuclear, which most of the opponents of fossil fuels don't. But even there, there's still a big trade-off. So this raises the question, how big a deal is reliable low-cost energy? And this leads to my second point, which is that I think it is fundamental to human flourishing, including a safe and healthy environment. So I said, I, I think in terms of human flourishing, what makes human life go as well as possible, including having an, a safe and healthy environment. What I'm arguing is that this energy that people aren't paying much attention to, this is fundamental, which means everything depends on it, which means to lose it would make the world a much worse place and a much less safe and clean place. Now, why do I think this? Well, I want to share with you some facts. And this, I think, is the most important fact about energy and really about life that we're no, almost never taught. So forget for a second on the top left is CO2 emissions. I want to focus on the others first. Start with the bottom right. We have population. So for years, and you know, this is going back 2,000 years, but it really, this is true going back 10,000 years and more. Population of the Earth was very, very small, well under 500 million. Now, why was it so? And then it suddenly skyrocketed up. Well, why? Well, one big reason, if you go up to life expectancy, is that life expectancy was under 30 for thousands of years. I mean, the average one of us would live to 30. I just turned 40, so this is very uh, poignant uh, to me. Like life, so what's ha what happened in the past is people died really early, so the population was really low. They didn't have birth control like we do. Like we can prevent population growth if we want through birth control. They cannot. Uh, not force birth control, by the way, but people can voluntarily uh, do it. So we have this is life expectancy was really low, and then it shot up. It's like a hockey stick. And so you might think, okay, we have more people with longer life expectancy. That's pretty amazing. But from what we're taught, usually, wouldn't we be running out of resources? Wouldn't everyone be poor if there are that many people? And yet, if we look at GDP per person, so that's income, which is really how many resources you have, that's going up like a hockey stick, too. So you have a world where there are more people living longer with more resources per person. And it's going up rapidly. Now to me, you know, you're in university. And this is in, you know, what they call higher learning. Like in my view, this should be one of the first things, if not the first thing discussed in universities, which is how is it that we live in such an amazing world? Like, What makes the world so amazing? Because we don't want to stop what makes it amazing. When we're thinking about changing the system, which you hear a lot about, I'm all for thinking about that. We have to recognize overall for the average human being, this is the best system that's ever existed in terms of the way the world is going right now. And yet there's very little interest in this. I think there should be intense interest in this. So what we have is we have a dramatic increase in the average individual's ability to flourish. So they're longer life, healthier, more opportunity. And then at the same time, we see this interesting thing, which is that it correlates with a hockey stick of CO2 emissions, which is interesting because we tend to think of, oh, CO2 emissions going up, the world is going to get worse. Like, we're going we're gonna, to uh, have shorter lives, 
with no resources. Now the question is why, is, why do these correlate? And you could say, okay, well, correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation, which is definitely true. So you can show, you can show graphs of correlations that have, that doesn't mean one causes the other. Like one of my favorites, the guy named Patrick Moore pointed this out to me and I think about it a lot. Like you can show a graph that matches uh, ice cream sales with shark attacks. It's like ice cream sales are low, shark attacks are low, ice cream sales are high, shark attacks are high. Did ice cream sales cause shark attacks? Did shark attacks cause ice cream sales? No, there's an underlying cause, which is summer, right? So this, does, this could be a coincidence, but I'm arguing it's not. Now it's not, I'm not arguing the CO2 emissions by themselves made life better, but remember CO2 emissions are what come from fossil fuels and fossil fuels are the overwhelming source of energy. What I'm arguing is that there's a very strong reason why low energy use means really bad life, really bad world to live in for the average individual, and really high energy use means really uh, good life. So why is this? Why, is, why am I arguing energy is fundamental to human flourishing? And you might be thinking like, how could it be energy really? Because for instance, isn't it, like, isn't it medical research or sanitation or developments in science and technology? And I'm gonna argue, yes, all of those are crucial, but they all depend on reliable low cost energy as well. So why, why do I think energy is so important? Well, one way to think about this is to ask a question that's also not asked. There's a question of why did, how did life get so good? One way to get at that is why was life bad for so long? Why was life bad for so long? And I'm gonna give a very controversial answer, but that nobody can give a refutation of. And the answer is that Earth is overrated. What do I mean by that? I mean, Earth is not naturally conducive to human flourishing. So think about that. Like we're taught to revere the Earth. The Earth is amazing. Like for all we know, it's the only planet that can support life. So it has amazing potential for life. It allowed us to evolve. So I love the Earth. I don't want to go to Mars. Uh, I don't want to change the Earth in a way that would make it impossible to breathe or go outside or something like that. But nevertheless, the Earth is not conducive to human flourishing. If it was, we sorry, we wouldn't have this flatness. We wouldn't have low population, low life expectancy, low resources. That means for the average person, life is really, really uh, bad. And so what's going on? Why is, why is life so bad for so long? So one is the nature of the earth, and two is the nature of the human body. There are huge limitations to both that energy helps us overcome. So let me talk about an issue in philosophy that I think helps shed light on this, helps us think clearly. Now this is first what I think is a false assumption that most of us are taught to believe to some degree. I certainly believe this to some degree for a while. And I call this the delicate nurturer assumption. And this is basically the idea that uh, nature exists in a delicate balance. And you see this from academics. This is in The Lion King. For those of you who've seen The Lion King, you know, Mufasa tells Simba, you know, everything around you exists in it. I don't have it memorized, but exists in a delicate balance. And this is what we're taught, like absent human impact, nature exists in a delicate balance and it has these three attributes. It's sufficient, meaning it'll give us what we need. It'll give us the nourishment we need. It's safe, you know, it'll keep us safe. We won't have all these climate disasters as long as we don't impact nature and make nature angry. And it's stable, it won't change too much. You see this particularly when we talk about the climate. People talk about the climate like, oh, the climate is this wonderful thing. 
but if we, if we anger the climate, the climate is going to punish us. So there's this view of, yeah, the climate is a delicate nurture. And on this view, if nature is a delicate nurture, human beings are really viewed as what I would call parasite polluters. So when we, we hear human beings talked about, it's like, we just plunder the earth. Like, we're just taking stuff, we're gobbling resources, we're consuming too much, and we're polluters. We just make it, it uh, dirty. And the idea is, therefore, if we impact the earth, it's going to destroy the delicate balance and us with it. And this is definitely the narrative around climate. Like, we put more CO2 in the atmosphere, we're going to ruin the delicate balance of the climate, and the climate is going to come and punish us. And this is true of people worried about running out of resources, people believing that pollution is just going to get overwhelming. It's, it's this delicate nurture assumption. And the problem with this assumption is just completely untrue. If nature was a delicate nurturer, again, we would not have life being terrible. That's not a delicate nurturer. So what is nature? I, I think a better way to think of nature is wild potential. So this captures both the fact that the planet has amazing potential, but that in its natural wild state, it's not very friendly. So the planet has the potential to be human friendly, but in its wild impacted state, it is deficient. It doesn't give us the nourishment like abundant food and clean water we need. It's uh, dangerous. It's got all sorts of threats to us that we need to deal with. And it is dynamic. It's changing uh, all the time. And from this perspective, human beings can make things worse, but we can also produce new value. So for example, we can take things on the earth that weren't resources and make them valuable, like aluminum wasn't a natural resource, it wasn't naturally a resource, and then we made it a resource. It was super abundant, but it was useless to us, and then we made it useful. So just like we think of birds can produce a nest and a beaver can produce a dam, human beings can produce new value. And we're also improvers. We can take dirty things and make them clean. So you think about like a swamp that's carrying malarial mosquitoes, like we can drain that swamp and make the local environment cleaner and safer for human beings. And so this view on the wild potential assumption then, we view it as we can and must significantly impact the planet to make it human friendly. And I'm stressing this because I think that this is the failure to recognize that nature is not natural, the planet is not naturally conducive to human flourishing causes us to not see all the amazing things that human productive activity uh, does. So you think about it as nature doesn't give, us, doesn't give us the nourishment we need. It doesn't give us the safety we need. So what do we have to do? We have to produce material values to give us that nourishment and that safety. So we have to produce our food. We have to produce clean water. We need to produce sturdy homes. We need to produce clothing to protect us against the elements. We need to produce, you know, hopefully vaccines to COVID-19, that kind of thing. We need to produce these values that allow us to flourish. And now this leads us to uh, the second problem, which is the human body. The human body is very, very weak. Now, like you might think, oh, I go to the gym, like I'm pretty strong. But in terms of your ability to produce everything you need to flourish, like to, pr to produce abundant food, particularly when there are billions of people uh, on the planet, to produce abundant shelter, abundant clothing, abundant medical care. If we're just using our physical body's manual labor, we can't produce that much. That's why when people are in a manual labor society, they are very unproductive. And so they experience the world as a very bad environment. We talk about the environment like it's perfect without us, but actually nature is a very bad environment unless we are very productive. So one way to think of this is 
the livability of the planet depends on our productive ability. And if we're relying on manual labor, our productive ability is very low. So how does energy come in? Well, energy is machine food. The key to productive ability is machine power, using machines to produce value for us. So machines are amazing, because machines can do uh, two different things. They can produce way more value than we can our, on our own. So for instance, a combine harvester producing food. One of these things can produce, run by one person, can produce enough wheat for 500,000 loaves of bread a day. You think about that. One person using this machine can produce enough wheat for 500,000 loaves of bread a day. That's 700 times what the best manual laborer can do. The best, not the average. Uh, the best. And so you just think about, wow, energy, machine, machine power makes possible extreme productivity, but machine power depends on what? Machine food, energy. Because without the energy, the machines don't run. And so the more machine food we can use, the more machines we can, use the, we can use to produce the values we need to flourish. And this is why the cost of reliable energy is so important. Because in our modern world, we use machines to produce almost everything we have. And in the US, for example, our machines, you think about average human being uses something like, average like manual labor human being is burning 2,000 calories a day. The average human being's machines burn 200,000 calories a day. So we basically have 100 full-time machine workers doing all this work for us to make us super comfortable and healthy. But we can only do that if the energy is reliable and it's low cost. So what happens if the cost goes up? Then we can afford to use fewer machines to do this work for us, and then the cost of everything goes up. But if the cost goes down, then we can use more machine power to benefit our lives. Now remember that, that we, use a, we have like 100 machine servants, 200,000 calories burned a day. I'll talk about the rest of the world in a minute. So this is the key thing that, this is one of the key things I should say about energy. So it allows us to do far more physical work than we can do manually. But the other thing it can do is it allows us to do types of, machines allow us to do types of work that we could never do ourselves. Like no number of humans can fly, right? We, need to, we can create a machine and it can fly. Like Jerry Seinfeld has this old joke about like, you know, why are we measuring rockets and horsepower? Is it like, oh, if you ran out of fuel, could you have horses take you to outer space? And the idea is no, like manual labor, animal labor can't do this. So machines allow us to do, they amplify our abilities by allowing us to do more work and they expand our abilities by allowing us to produce types of value we can't ourselves, like the internet, Netflix, medical machines, all of these things are only possible with machines. And that requires machine food, which is energy. Now let's go back to the original thing. So this, you might say, this is really important. We can be a lot more productive, but is energy, but aren't there things that are more important? Like what about medical progress? Like isn't that really what's driving things? And so let me ask this, I have another copy of, of the book uh, or I have an infinite supply of t-shirts if anyone wants those or I can send you a book. What, what do you think my answer is to the argument that, oh, it's not really energy that's responsible for increasing life expectancy, it's medical progress. Or more broadly, it's scientific and technological research. Uh, you already got the prize. Yes. 
Oh, we need energy to be able to carry out those experiments or the technology, the machines and stuff to do the research that leads to medical advancement. Good. So that's half the answer. So I'll, uh, you win, but then we can have one other winner. So part of it is all these things. So modern scientific and medical research this is not being done on abacuses. Right? They're not being done on pen and paper. They have amazing machines that are involved. So modern innovation requires machines to be very effective. Now, what's the other, what would be my other answer? Can anyone think? The teacher can't answer. OK. Machines um, maybe free up time from time that's spent doing like manual labor so that people could invest like, that time in now like, doing scientific research or whatnot to be grown their own food. Exactly. 100, 100%. So you can have two uh, if you want. Just write it on the, on the sheet. This is, this is a key thing about the relationship between energy and human flourishing. It's the lower cost energy is the more time we have to think and innovate. Because think about what life is like normally. We need to consume value every day. right? We need to consume food. And then we need to, we're eventually, like we're using our shelter, we're using our clothing, which wear out. So we need to take time to produce those things. And when we have manual labor, most of our time is taken producing the crude necessities. If most of your time is taken producing the crudest necessities, you're not engaging in innovation. Right? If, if we, a manual labor society does not have the ability to deploy millions of medical professionals to fight COVID-19. Right? It just doesn't happen. So the lower cost energy is the less time it takes us to provide our, basic, our most basic physical needs. And the more productive time we free up for other activities, the more time we free up for other activities. So it can be leisure as well. But it also frees up a lot of time that we can use to innovate. So it's not that I'm saying technological progress, scientific research aren't important. They're absolutely crucial. But they depend hugely on reliable, low-cost energy. Final thing to say, so energy and human flourishing. So we have these. They, Low-cost, reliable energy powers the machines that expand and ampl amplify and expand our abilities. They free up time. One other aspect I want to talk about is our environment. So there's this correlation with basically every metric of environmental quality over the long term goes improves as we use more energy, which that seems crazy because fossil fuels, aren't they just making our environment dirty? Like you think about fossil fuels and water, Fossil fuels aren't creating clean water, right? They're just, made, they're just spilling oil into the ground or fracking is contaminating the ground or these different types of things. So let me ask, how, uh, how could it, why does more energy use lead, for example, to more clean water? Any thoughts? Yes. Pumping um, water from the source to the south takes a lot of energy, like water just, we don't drink water from the river or wherever. So like the cleaning process, the Transportation process through pipes would take energy to get through your stuff. Yes. So that's what, and by the way, anyone answers a question, just message me and I'll send you a book or a t shirt. So that's, can I, can you, there's one other aspect too. So one is that nature doesn't give us water where we need it necessarily. The water is often distant. So we need to pump it, and that takes machines that take energy. Can you think of anything else that uh, makes us require energy to get clean drinking water? Oh, I was asking everybody, you answered too. That's good. Yeah, water filtration, why? Why do we need water filtration? It's like toxic minerals or something in the water. 
yeah, there could be toxic minerals. So the way to think about it is nature doesn't give us accessible, clean water. There's this idea that nature just gives us perion, not perion, Evian and Perrier and Fiji, and it's all natural. And it's true, there are some really nice places for water, but that's not where most of us uh, live. And so what we need to do is we need to pump water from where it is to where we need it, which takes machine power, and then we need to purify it from a dirty state to a clean state, which takes a huge amount of machine power. And so if we recognize that, then we get, oh wait, and this is a, this is a mind shift that was really big for me, like nature doesn't give us, like fossil fuels don't take a naturally clean environment and make it dirty, they take a naturally dirty environment and make it cleaner. Now they can also have dirtying impacts, so we want to address those and I'm going to talk about those under side effects. We have to recognize that energy makes the world a much cleaner place. And this, this idea that nature doesn't give us like a safe and clean environment, it really helps explain the issue of climate. Because I'm going to tell you what the most single surprising thing for me when I started looking at this issue was, which was what's been the trend as we've used more fossil fuels, what's happened to the safety of our climate? Because I, when I started studying this, I thought, well, of course, climate has gotten much more dangerous. Like, of course, deaths are up from extreme temperatures and floods and certainly wildfires. I mean, given what we hear this year and um, drought, you know, anything you can think of, of course, those are going up. And so my suspicion is, well, those aren't going up like those aren't as bad as the benefits of fossil fuels are good, but still climate's becoming more dangerous and I'm concerned it's gonna be uh, way more dangerous. And yet, and then somebody pointed out to me, well, have you ever looked at the data about how dangerous climate is? And I said, no, I hadn't. I said, well, there's a statistic which you can like call climate-related deaths or climate disaster deaths collected by nonpartisan agencies. And what's happened as we've been using more fossil fuels and CO2 emissions have gone up? Actually, climate-related deaths have plummeted so since the 1920s, which is the first time we have any decent data, the death rate from climate, so the percentage of people who die from climate-related causes, has gone down by 98%, which means the average person is 150th as likely to die from a climate-related cause as they were in the 1920s. So how is that possible? Well, if you recognize that the Earth is not conducive to human flourishing and it's a very dangerous place, then it makes sense because the earth doesn't give us a safe climate that we make dangerous. It gives us a very dangerous climate we need to make safe. And so what do we do with fossil fuels and machines? We produce amazing amounts of climate protection. So the most obvious ones are heating and air conditioning, but those are really easy to underrate. You think, I was in Austin, I live in Laguna Beach, it's a pretty nice climate most of the year round. Even sometimes there we need air conditioning. But I was visiting a friend in Austin, it's like 105 outside uh, all day. And yet, good air conditioning system, fairly low cost electricity, and it can be comfortable in 75 uh, inside the house. You just think about what an ability that is, or keeping warm in the winter. But it's not just that. How is it that we have sturdy buildings with insulation? Those are produced by machines. How is it that we provide drought relief? Like when people have a local drought and they're out of food, how do we prevent, you know, sometimes millions of people used to die in droughts and famines. Well, we have machines that transport huge amounts of food from one place to another. How do we minimize drought in the first place so it doesn't destroy crops? We have irrigation. That's powered by machines. So what we have is we have all these amazing fossil-fueled machines that produce enormous amounts of climate protection. And that's why we're so 
safe from climate. And it's especially those of us in what I call the empowered world. And these are the two billion people or so who I'd say use a lot of energy. And part of, partially the reason why it's gone down for everybody is because in the empowered world, we help the less empowered world out a lot. So for example, there's a drought in some place in sub-Saharan Africa, now we're able to uh, alle help alleviate it. But it'd be much, much better, be infinitely better, if everywhere people had low-cost energy, low-cost machine power, so then they could really produce climate protection and handle almost anything. So what implication of this, if we're looking at the future impacts of CO2 levels, which I'll talk about soon, is that it would take a huge, a hugely overwhelming climate change to cause a problem. Because think about it, nature has huge climate danger and we've basically mastered it by producing all this climate protection. So you'd really have to, it can't just be how oh, the temperature goes up a few degrees or there are a few more storms or sea levels rise a little bit. Like it has to be a huge change. So the fact, if, if we cause some climate impact, that doesn't mean at all that there's gonna be a problem. It has to be a massive and overwhelming climate impact. And when people talk about climate change, it's not just, oh, climate change is real. You have to show oh, it's massive, unprecedented, overwhelming, which you can't rule out before looking into it, but it's a very high burden of proof. It's not just, oh, there was one more storm this year. I think it ha happened from CO2, so let's take away everyone's machine power, right? Because then you go back to the time when you can't deal with any storm and everything is overwhelming. So that's the relationship between energy and human flourishing. So again, the lower cost energy is, the more we can use machines to produce the values we need to flourish, the values that nourish us and the values that protect us, including climate uh, protection. And also all the values that fulfill us. You just think about even enjoying nature, how much machines are involved in that and building the roads and getting you there. You know, visiting family and friends, how much machines are involved. One thing I want you to take away from this is just think about the world we live in. Think of it in terms of how machines are producing almost everything for us. That's what makes it possible. And then every time there are machines, there's machine food. And most of that machine food is coming from fossil fuels because it's the lowest cost reliable option most of the time. So I've said all this stuff about the benefits of energy. And I mentioned in passing, only 2 billion people use what I would say a lot of it, anywhere close to what we use in the United States. The most, so this is just a summary, the most alarming thing is that three billion people in the world use almost no energy, like almost no energy. So if you break this down, there are 835 million people, and this has been improving fortunately, but it's still at this level, who use no electricity, like none uh, at all, which is you just think about how scary a prospect that would be uh, for us and all the things that that prevents. But there's some overlap here, but the 2.7 billion human beings, when they're cooking their food, and heating their homes, which are two major uses of energy, particularly heating your home. There are 2.7 billion people who are using what's called biomass or primitive biomass, which is wood or animal dung. So you think about the way of life when people are using wood for their heat or animal dung, what your air quality is like when you're doing like, what kind of environment is that when you have very little energy and you're breathing in fumes from this stuff? And think about it, nobody talks about this when they talk about energy. It's just all about, oh, fossil fuels have negative side effects, which is fine to talk about, but you have to talk about the benefits are that billions of people can live in an amazing world and there's still billions of people who don't have it. So as I said before, if you wanna reduce CO2 emissions dramatically, that means less energy. 
and yet we live in a world where we need way more energy. So there are three billion people who use virtually none of it, and there are three billion more people who use only a small percentage of what we use in the US, like less, so six billion, the way to think of it is six billion people in the world use less than 40% as much energy as we use in the US. And that's a huge cost. So you might say, I'm so afraid of rising CO2 levels, it's worth it to deprive everyone of huge amounts of machine power. You have to realize that's the trade-off. And this is what I think a lot of the climate people who are just focused on climate, I don't think they take this trade-off seriously at all. Their whole focus is, do you believe climate change is real? Well, I can believe it's real and still believe it's totally worth it to empower billions of people. And that's what I actually believe. So if we continue using fossil fuels, and if we continue using more of them and keep pursuing alternatives as the alternatives become actually reliable, low cost, we can continue a lot of really good trends. So there's global poverty. This is the number of people making less than $2 a day. It was over a third of the world in 1990. Now it's less than 10%. Unfortunately, some of the pandemics and lockdowns is going to increase that, but hopefully we can get it down again. Life expectancy, 46 to 71 years between 1950 and 2015. Income per person adjusted for inflation, um, you know, risen by 372%. So almost five times as high. Um, infant deaths before the age of one have declined by 72%. So just think about the tragedy of infant mortality and how much that's gone down. And then education, this relates to the point about freeing up time. The average length of schooling has increased um, by 110%. So people have way more time getting uh, educated. So my summary of this point is that continuing fossil fuel use is essential to billions of people having the reliable low-cost energy they need to flourish. And I believe this 100% that restricting fossil fuel use would be genocidal. I mean that literally. And that's why I go to a protest, because I just think of it as, oh, you're going to put billions of people or keep billions of people in a primitive state. They're going to have to live a lot closer to what the average person lived throughout history. I think there's nothing worse you could do for a human being's environment than that. All right, so let's talk about uh, the side effects. And I think the side effects are easier to think about once we really get the benefits, because the benefits are so environmental. So there's this question of all these benefits. Is it worth it to inflict mass suffering and death to avoid side effects? And I think with the question of, well, so my, my view on climate, which I think is the main one to be concerned about, I believe it'll cause some warming, but nothing resembling catastrophic. Now, I don't think there's any case that any of the other side effects of fossil fuels could justify restricting energy use around the world, only to have good laws against pollution, but not to really restrict it. So if you just take something like air pollution, which is a conventional side effect, that's gone down in the US as energy use has gone up. So we do have cost-effective ways to reduce pollution. So it's not that it's not a concern, but it's not a concern that should make us consider reducing fossil fuel use in general, just having good laws uh, about it. But with climate, there is a real concern, because as we emit more CO2, it adds up in the atmosphere. And so people are concerned that, well, as more and more accumulates, what's going to happen? And if a certain type of thing happened, it would be like you would need to stop it. Like, for example, if just warming was very rapid and out of control and completely unstoppable, and the Earth heated 50 degrees Fahrenheit or something like that, no, that would you would need to that would basically be the biggest tragedy ever. Like you, and you have to recognize, yeah, we're to stop this. A lot of people are going to have to die to avoid a much worse fate. But it's it's like it would be like the biggest war ever, kind of like against ourselves. But we have to recognize that there is such a cost. So I do believe it's really important to look into this issue. 
but we need to do this with precision, not the kind of sloppiness I mentioned. So I'll just give you the overview of my view, and you can read more in the book and in other places. So I'll just give you three, three things that really changed my perspective on this. And all of these, I want to stress, these are not speculation. This is not from political sources. These are all easily verifiable. So fact one is that environmental thought leaders, the people who are designated experts like Michael Mann, have been predicting imminent climate doom for 30 plus years. He's a little bit younger, so not him in particular. He's been doing it for maybe 20. Uh, but for example, this guy, Paul Ehrlich. So he's one of the world's leading ecologists. You know, not in the late 60s or early 70s, he said, if I were a gambler, I would take even money that England will not exist in the year 2000. Climate change is one of the reasons. Now, one of um, Ehrlich's uh, protégés and collaborators, John Holdren, you may recognize him. He was President Obama's chief science advisor, so a very high-level guy. He said in the 80s, as quoted by his collaborator Ehrlich, it's possible that carbon dioxide climate-induced famines could kill as many as a billion people before the year 2020. So it's 2020 now. More people are being fed than ever by fossil-fueled machines. There's been nothing resembling famine. We have all-time lows of climate-related deaths. And it's not just individuals. The UN, which is the leading organization uh, on climate thought, they have a history of claiming that we're facing imminent climate doom. So this is an article from um, 1989 about somebody saying, if we don't reverse the trend by the year 2000, there's going to be all these eco-refugees. And there was a 10-year window of opportunity in 1989. Otherwise, there's going to be a disaster. And so we're way past this. And what they predicted hasn't happened at all. So that's, that's fact one, which is that when we, and the reason this is important is because seeing the history of predictions helps put today's predictions into context. Just like if you hear a fortune teller for the first time and they sound really confident, you might think, oh, maybe I am going to die if I take this flight. But like if you see them make 100 wrong predictions, then you become suspicious there's something off with the method. So there is this history of wrong predictions. Doesn't mean the present ones are going to be wrong, but it opens up the possibility that they could. Fact two, which I address from a different perspective, is that we've been increasing CO2 in the atmosphere for 170 years using fossil fuels. So we're not, it's not a completely unprecedented thing for them to go up. And what we found is that human beings are safer from climate than they've ever been. So I showed you this before, this climate-related deaths. CO2 in the atmosphere is going up. Climate-related deaths are going down. I mentioned the main reason is because we're using fossil-fueled machines to produce so much climate protection it overwhelms all the massive natural climate danger. But if CO2 has added any climate danger, it's also overwhelmed that. So, so far, if CO2 has added any climate danger, we can't even tell because our climate protection abilities are so great. Now, sometimes people think, oh, well, if they read my book, they'll say, oh, well, this data is from 2013. It must have gotten more dangerous. In my book, I talk about 20,000-something climate-related deaths. So the latest data we have from 2018 is 6,600 46 climate disaster deaths in the world. So you think about that. How now? You, of course, you can always say every death is a tragedy, and that's true. But like 6,000 people, less than 7,000 people dying of this, and we're taught that this is the biggest problem in the world. This is worth taking measures that will literally starve people who won't have the machines needed to produce food, who will deprive billions of people of opportunity. Like this, climate is something that's getting safer and safer, at least so far. So how is it possible? Again, it's because we're so good at producing climate protection with machine power. One way to think of it is you can think of us as masters of climate when we have low-cost machine power. So it's the climate mastery benefits of low-cost reliable energy have far outweighed any negative side effects. Now, does that mean that 
that's going to happen in the future. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen in the future, but when people are making predictions, they better account for climate protection and climate mastery. And what you find is when you look at the negative predictions, they almost never account for climate mastery. That's why they're wrong. And so this is the third fact, and this has to do with how much warming we can expect. And this is while certain environmental thought leaders have predicted runaway warming and rapid sea level rises already, we've experienced only two degrees Fahrenheit, one degree Celsius, you'll often hear it in terms of in the last 150, 170 years, with sea level rises that are very slow compared to our ancestors. So there's this prediction of predicting it's going to get a lot worse, but what's uh, actually happened is not what people have predicted. And why is this? I believe it's because man-made climate influence or climate impact is real, but it's very exaggerated. Remember, we have to be about precision. It's not just that we impact climate, it's how much. And I think it's dramatically exaggerated in the past. And I have reason to, and I think it's definitely being exaggerated going uh, forward. So one, why do I think this? Well, one reason is, if we look at the history of the planet, it would be one thing if today's CO2 levels were record high, temperatures were record high, if, this, if the planet had never been in this state, it would be pretty scary because it'd be, oh, this is unprecedented territory. What's going to happen? Are we going to become like Venus, that kind of thing? But what this shows is this is uh, CO2 levels are purple, temperatures are blue. What you can see is they're both at very low levels in terms of the geological history of the Earth, including you know, various evolutionary ancestors of ours thrived when CO2 levels were more than 10 times higher than we are today and where temperatures were 25 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than today. Earth thrived for long periods of time with either temperatures 25 degrees warmer, uh, life on Earth, and, and CO2 levels more than 10 times higher. So what this shows, and the Earth didn't burn up or any of these crazy things. So what this shows is that whatever CO2 is going to do in terms of warming, it's not going to burn up the planet or go out of control or something. Now, why is that? Because we're taught to think, oh, if we just add a little more CO2, at some point it's going to be a tipping point, it's going to be a disaster. Well, if you look at the physics of CO2, it makes a lot of sense. And this is something every climate scientist agrees with, and I'll qualify where they disagree, but they almost never talk about it. And I was really mad when I learned it and I started asking about it. Nobody would ever dispute it. But I thought, like, why wasn't I never, ever told this? And this goes to what you can, call the, um, you can call the trajectory of how CO2 works. The trajectory means as you increase CO2, how much warming occurs. So one thing would be a linear trajectory. So it'd be like one new molecule of CO2 warms like this. You just take like 100 parts per million, it would be like 100, 200, 300. So it's like linear. So X amount of CO2 leads to Y amount of warming. That would be potentially alarming depending on the rate. But an, the alarming thing would be accelerating. So that every new molecule of CO2 warms faster than the last. So it looks like this. And that's certainly what I was led to believe. But in fact, it's actually a decelerating uh, effect, or technically a logarithmic effect, which means each new molecule of CO2, when you can isolate it, has less of a warming impact than the last one. So you get diminishing returns. Each new one adds some warmth, but it's less than the last. So there are different analogies you can think of this too, but it's like, uh, you know, if you're painting the barn red, like the first coat of paint, you can still sort of see the barn through it, but then you use another coat and it gets redder, and then it gets a little redder and a little, but at a certain point it doesn't get that much redder because it's already pretty red. And that's a simplified version of how this works. So what we would expect is that more CO2 leads to warming, but that warming starts to taper off per unit of, of um, CO2. And what we see, if we look at this in a human context, what we see is we've increased CO2 from 
0.03% of the atmosphere to 0.04%, so about a rate, about 50% increase, relatively speaking. And the temperature's gone up one degree Celsius, two degrees Fahrenheit. And to put that in perspective, this is how much daily temperature varies in New York. So the amount of temperature increase from our perspective is actually quite small. So you need a real burden of proof to show how this, how this effect that's a decelerating effect is somehow going to lead to out of control accelerated warming. And if Michael Mann were here, he would say, well, you're not, they're what are called positive feedback. So even though the effect is decelerating, it'll increase things like water vapor and that'll lead to accelerating. But even they admit that over the long term, it's going to start decelerating. So there's no, they might say, oh, it'll get four degrees warmer by the end of the century, four degrees Celsius. They might even say at the extremes like 10 degrees Fahrenheit, which I think is very unlikely. But even that, human beings could totally handle and in some ways would be more desirable. I'm not saying I'm wishing for that, but if we're, we have to weigh trade-offs. Because remember, the trade-off is billions of people not having energy, not having a modern life. Like, human beings could totally adapt to anything, even the people who claim dramatic climate change. I haven't seen one scenario that has been held by any significant percentage, even of climate scientists I think are wrong, that human beings could not adapt to. So I think the main thing going on with climate is not that the predictions are exaggerated, although I think they are, it's that people underestimate adaptation. They underestimate our ability to master climate by producing, using machines to produce huge amounts of climate protection. That's why they keep thinking the world is gonna end. Just to give you one thing about, let's look at sea levels. We're taught sea level rises are unprecedented. This is from Wikipedia, which is very biased against fossil fuels and against me for that matter, if you look up my uh, entry last time I checked anyway. But you know, 10,000 years ago, we were dealing with really rapid sea level rises. Today, they're very slow. They might be less slow than they were 100 years ago, but they're not rapid. And if you're worried about sea level rises, just consider over 100 million people in the world already live below sea level because of climate mastery. Like they live below sea level. So what is going to happen to sea levels that human beings are anywhere near this rate that human beings will be unable to adapt to? The whole basis of this climate catastrophe view is that it's, you could call it, it's not climate mastery denial. Just denying the fact that human beings are really good at mastering climate. So they say, oh my gosh, sea levels are going to go up two feet. Whether that's true or not, sea levels go up two feet in 80 years or even four feet in 80 years, human beings can adapt. If you restrict energy use, human beings cannot adapt very well to that because manual labor is so limited. So this is basically the end. My summary is we're having a mild warming influence on climate that we can readily adapt to. That's, and my guess is it'll continue to be mild, but even if it's significantly more than I think, we can readily adapt and it's totally worth it compared to disempowering the world. So my full context conclusion about fossil fuels is that they have irreplaceable benefits and extremely manageable side effects, and thus they should be a leading source of energy for decades to come. Just to give you three quick policy conclusions, because we're in an election year, I'm not going to endorse any candidate, but I just because there are a lot of issues involved, but I want to impress upon you this is a huge issue. So overall, if the world continues and expands our massive use of fossil fuels, life will get better across the world. If the world rapidly eliminates the use of fossil fuels, life will get worse across the board. That's a huge understatement. I mean, billions of premature deaths if that happened. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that everyone in the world is going to agree to stop using fossil fuels. Again, China and India are building hundreds of coal plants as we speak right now, and I think they should. They should be doing that. But what I do think is possible is that the US and other nations that we will unilaterally restrict our energy use, and that will be very destructive to us. 
And that's something I'm trying to prevent. So if the US tries to rapidly eliminate fossil fuels, our lives will get far worse and far less secure from foreign threats. I think it's super important, whatever your party is, your affiliation is, to advocate for better energy policies, to have more energy freedom, including the freedom to use fossil fuels, and to reject these things like the Green New Deal, 100% renewable, net zero by 2030. Like all of these things are like complete disasters that will hugely handicap Americans, particularly poor and middle-class Americans, and they'll do nothing, by the way, about CO2 levels around the world. The only way to stop CO2 levels from rising long-term is innovation that makes low-carbon energy cheap, and it's almost certainly going to have to be nuclear. So I'm all for decriminalizing nuclear, but not for criminalizing fossil fuels. So what, again, whatever your party or anything like that, make this an issue. So if you're a Republican, encourage the Republicans to talk about this. If you're a Democrat, encourage Biden or whoever else to, to not oppose fracking, to not support these crazy schemes, I mean, because they are genocidal. And I, just to give you a resource, and I'll, I'll email this to you as well if you put your email address on the thing, uh, energytalkingpoints.com is a resource I created a couple months ago. And what this has is very short, I think punchy, well-referenced talking points on every issue. So climate, fracking, uh, CO2 emissions, nuclear, anything you can think of, you can get really good talking points and share them uh, with people. So really encourage you to check that out. And I think it went a little bit long, so I apologize for that, but you guys had really good uh, interactions. I hope you enjoyed it. And I would just say that as a final thought, energy is fundamental to human flourishing. And if we have a world of energy freedom, we're gonna have an amazing world in the future. Thank you. All right, hope you enjoyed uh, that speech. There's also a really, really interesting Q&A period that I'll either share on the show next week or at least post it, I'll at least post it to YouTube. It just depends on when it's available. It should be available in the next week. There's also a really interesting podcast interview I did with uh, Vaughn Dyke and with his podcast partner, who's an artist in the area. Interestingly, and that, that was a super wide-ranging interview where we talked a lot about frameworks, not just for thinking about energy and environmental issues, but for thinking about uh, basically every uh, issue in life. So look forward to those. That should that podcast should also be out uh, next week. All right. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. I've been mentioning lately, I've been doing a lot of virtual speaking. So if you'd like a virtual speech or an in-person speech, I think I've done three in-person events in the last month. So happy to do those as well. Just email me, alex at alexepstein.com. And if you really liked this version of the moral case for fossil fuels, and if you think I've been improving, I think you're right. And one reason why I've been improving is because of the support of our accelerators who help fund the pretty significant research and development uh, budget that we have at the Center for Industrial Progress because I pay people to really help me with different aspects of my thinking, uh, familiarize me with different facts, and it's, it's very valuable, but it's really made possible, particularly during pandemic times, by accelerators. So if you want to become an accelerator or become more of an accelerator, go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. Reminder, as always, make sure to get on my mailing list, which you can do at alexepsteinlist.com. And also, let me just add a reminder to subscribe to the podcast on any podcast platform or subscribe to our page, our YouTube profile at youtube.com slash improve the planet. 
good. Uh, that, that's all for this week. I hope uh, next week I'll be back. I have a really interesting guest next week. So looking forward to that. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.